the People Who Read People podcast. In this episode, I interview Dr. Michael Macy about his work showing how some political parties' stances on issues can be rather arbitrary and can be dependent on chance and initial conditions. You might remember a scene in the movie Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum's character places drops of water on the hand of Laura Dern's character. He does this to demonstrate how the unknown and unmeasurable state of things, such as imperfections in Laura Dern's hand or variations in the air, might lead a drop of water to travel one way or another. In a similar way, perhaps some stances on issues that are associated with political parties may also be arbitrary. Perhaps they could easily be different, even entirely switched, if initial conditions had been different. For example, if political influencers in the early days of the United States had staked out their positions just a little bit differently, others would have then piled on and aligned with those positions, leading to very different political party stances. Researchers like Dr. Macy refer to such effects as opinion cascades. Similar to the water droplet in Jurassic Park taking different paths down Laura Dern's hand, our political opinions can take different paths dependent on early influencers. A little bit about Dr. Michael Macy. He is Goldwyn Smith Professor of Arts and Sciences at Cornell and Director of the Social Dynamics Lab. His research has been published in leading journals including Science, PNAS, Science Advances, Nature Human Behavior, American Journal of Sociology, American Sociological Review, and Annual Review of Sociology. To summarize the gist of Dr. Macy's Opinion Cascades research, I'll read from a 2019 article that was published in Cornell Chronicle. Social scientists have long wondered how political partisanship develops. In his 2002 book, The Blank Slate, cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker asked, Why on earth should people's beliefs about sex predict their beliefs about the size of the military? What does religion have to do with taxes? Even more confusing is the tendency of U.S. political parties to radically shift platforms. Macy asks, why have the major political parties shifted positions on issues like free trade, balanced budgets, legalization of marijuana, same-sex marriage, and trust in science? And how is it that voters on both sides often have contradictory positions on abortion rights and capital punishment? Macy's team looked for answers by conducting an experiment in which they recreated the early days of opinion formation to see how the cards might have fallen differently had early movers held different arbitrary opinions. The researchers split more than 2,000 Democratic and Republican volunteers into 10 parallel worlds, each isolated from the others. Within each world, participants took turns filling out an online survey to indicate whether they agreed or disagreed with a series of unfamiliar political and cultural issues. In two of the 10 worlds, the survey was private, But in the other eight, whenever a partisan took a position on a given issue, all other participants in their world saw a real-time update of how each party was leaning. The results showed how a handful of early movers can trigger a cascade in which later partisans pile on to their party's newly emerging position, leading eventually to large political differences. The big surprise was that the party that supported the issue in one world was just as likely to oppose the issue in another world. As Macy said, sometimes the same party's early movers would go one way and sometimes the other. And in each world, participants followed these early movers, often in opposite directions. Macy said, in one world, it was Democrats who favored using AI to spot online criminals. And in another world, it was Republicans. In one world, Democrats favored classic books. And in another world, Republicans favored the classics. 
In one world, Democrats were more optimistic about the future, and in another world, it was Republicans. End quote. Okay, so here's the interview with Dr. Michael Macy of Cornell. Okay, thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Macy. Well, thanks for having me, Zach. Yeah, so your work points at kind of a chaos theory view of political polarization situations, that there's an, kind of an arbitrary, unpredictable aspect behind a, a lot of the views and stances that we tend to think are due to logical or coherent principles. Do you see your work as tying in to kind of chaos theory, initial condition types of views about the state of the world? Uh, yes. I mean, cascades, in fact, illustrate uh, the famous butterfly effect, uh, which actually is more about complexity theory. Uh, chaos theory is about sudden and unexpected system-wide transformations. Uh, complexity theory is about the dynamics of interconnectivity of autonomous systems. So random perturbations can trigger a cascade that generates very highly non-random patterns, uh, even though the origins are, are random. And these non-random patterns can in turn uh, trigger the uh, quintessentially human proclivity to invent post hoc explanations. Uh, you know, sometimes the faces in the clouds are just that, they're clouds. Uh, but one difference is that clouds quickly disappear, whereas cascades produce not only uh, very strong non-random patterns, but they're also very stable patterns. So it's really no surprise that people assume that these patterns must reflect uh, some non-random causal process, and then we, we try to imagine what that might be. And what our research shows, and this is really the, the bottom line, this is really the most important uh, conclusion from our research, it's that we first have to rule out the possibility that the patterns might have happened purely by chance as the result of a cascade. Your work seemed to tie into a lot of kind of like John Haidt talks about motivated reasoning. Like we have, we kind of have these feelings or, or things that we've grown to think and they're, they're not logically informed. They're just kind of things that ha have become emotional triggers for us or things that have, you know, we've become set in these ruts of ways of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I think it seems to be part of our nature that we like to explain things. Uh, we don't like to think that something is is not explainable. And we in, sometimes invent deities uh, to explain things when we can't come up with anything better. Um, and and so it's. I think it is somewhat dissatisfying or unsatisfying to learn that you can get really striking patterns that are very, very far away from random out of processes that are, in fact, random. And, uh, yeah, we, we don't like to think that that's the case. And that's even true in the scientific community. And so our paper, in some ways, is, as you say, it's very much grounded in this idea and complexity theory that uh, it's a kind of a butterfly effect story. Do you see this kind of tying into sort of an existential need that humans have? We need certainty. We desire certainty to, uh, we want to feel certain about our self-concepts and about our ideas of the world and not want to believe that they're just kind of arbitrary. So if I can just uh, actually point out that what you just did is asked me to explain the need for explanation. Uh, so I, th <laughs> I think that illustrates the point. We, we really do want to have explanations. And I have no business trying to explain that because this is not the area 
that uh, in which I do research. And so I'm sure there are uh, people in cognitive psychology who have done research on that and can tell you a lot about it. Nevertheless, I will say two things. One is that you would like to hear an explanation, and I would love to give you one. Uh, we, we, we just really do like to explain things. It seems to be part of our genetic wiring, but I'm going to resist the temptation. Right. Well, that's that's very re- respectable because I know that we all have the desire to weigh in on things, even when we don't have a firm opinion on them. You know, uh, and that's yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think we all we have I mean, to resist that be, urge. You know, it could be a need for control, right? If we think we explain things, then we think we can control them. Uh, so it might be desire for control. It might, you know, there are some theories in um, evolutionary theory that. Um, at some point in our in our uh, our genetic ancestors, our evolutionary ancestors uh, went through a phase where um, the males who were more likely to attract a mate and reproduce, survive and reproduce, switched from being the alpha males, uh, you know, the ones that were big, muscular, powerful people, to the ones who could spin a good story. And so maybe it's just wired into our genes that there was some evolutionary advantage to being able to explain things. And I, I will certainly say that as a, a not very athletic academic, uh, that's an evolutionary story that I love to think might be true. <laughs> right, right. It certainly was not true when I was in high school. I have to admit. <laughs> right. It goes. It goes in uh, phases. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, so, ha- has there been similar research on this topic before you? Yes. In fact, uh, back in 2006, uh, a former student, Matt Salganic, along with uh, Duncan Watts and Peter Dodds, uh, showed how cultural unpredictability uh, can be explained as the consequence of cascades in which initial randomness is amplified into runaway cultural winners. You know, why does some music, uh, why does some song become such a runaway hit? You, You get these lopsided outcomes in which a particular song uh, becomes a runaway hit. And, and when that happens, then, yes, you start getting people racking their brains, trying to come up with an intuitive explanation for why did this song become a hit. But in fact, what their research shows is that actually it could just be an accident amplified by a cascade. And, uh, you know, some song has to win, and it could just be luck of the draw, and then it runs away with it. it. It dominates the market. It gets to the billboard and stays. And then we think it must be something about the song when, in fact, it could just be chance. Yeah, your, your work makes me think of all the elements of chance in life, you know, like business success. You know, there's just so many situations where people create a business, create a something and it, it succeeds. And we tend to think, oh, that's because of, you know, we did something right. Whereas like, it could just be completely arbitrary. Like I was talking to someone who almost had their, their company featured on an Oprah and it would have been obviously been a life-changing thing and their company end up failing. And, you know, the, there's all these, these elements of chance and, and all these things we do, but we, we tend to assign, you know, oh, we, this is because we had a great idea or this is because we did something really right here. Yeah. So your work just make, makes me think of all those. And our, yeah, and our key contribution and, and, and theirs as well. So organic's group as well. It's to show that it's, it's not just chance. It's chance plus cascades that cascades can take 
that butterfly flapping its wings, that chance initial event, and and cause it to run away to become a very uh, far from random pattern, a very far from random outcome. Uh, and that's really, I think, the focus of our research. It's it's that cascades can greatly amplify chance occurrences into highly non-random patterns that invite explanations, which could just be spurious. So I'll read a, I wanted to read a few of the issues that you surveyed people about in your research. And I, I think it was inter- it's interesting to hear a few of those. And to reiterate how this worked uh, for the audience, so you would either ask people to give their opinions on which political party might have this stance at some point in the future, or in another version of this, they had a chance to win money by guessing which stance aligned with which political party. So before I read a few of those, is that a pretty good summary of the of the two things that you asked people? Well, so the key thing, and th- this is what we, we, we borrowed. In fact, we, we pretty much copied the research design used by the Salganic group who were studying music. But what we did is we changed music to politics. Uh, so we were looking at runaway political polarization, where the two parties take entrenched positions on the opposite sides of an issue. And for sure, political scientists are going to look at that and and political psychologists are going to look at that and come up with some explanation for why the Democrats are on this side and the Republicans are on that. But here's the thing. Like the Salganic study, we created these uh, 10 parallel universes. If you're in one universe, you do not know that there even are the nine other universes. So this is the only universe that you know. We've recruited the participants for the experiment. We've assigned them to these 10 parallel universes. And in eight of those 10 universes, you get to see what Democrats and Republicans who've gone before you have said on that issue. And then in two of them, you have to give your opinion on the issue without knowing what other Democrats or Republicans have said. That's sort of our baseline or control condition. And so then what we found is that it was a coin toss. Uh, you take a particular issue, let's say it's Bitcoin regulation or it's something about artificial intelligence or self-driving cars or school curriculum. Those are some of the issues that we, we included in it. In one world or one of these parallel universes, the Democrats are on, are on the pro side and the Republicans are on the con by big margin. But then in the next world over, it's flipped over and it's the Republicans that support and the Democrats who are opposed. But of course, if you're we just live in our one universe. And so we don't realize that it could just as easily have been that the parties would have been on the opposite sides, whether it's uh, uh, tariffs and you know free trade issues or uh, uh, internationalism. Or, or even climate change. It could just as easily have been that the sides could have been switched. So let me read a few of those issues. I'll just read four of the 20 you had. I think it's interesting. So one is the exchange of cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin, should be banned in the United States. Another one was self-driving cars should be programmed to make life or death decisions that minimize total harm or death, even if that means sacrificing the driver's own safety. Another one was artificial intelligence programs should be developed to serve as public defenders for those who cannot afford a human attorney. And another one was artificial intelligence software should be used to detect online blackmailing on email platforms. 
so that was just a few. And I'm actually going to read a few more of those at the very end, as I think it's it can be interesting for people to uh, think about those, how they would answer those. So some of the political division we see between U.S. Democrats and Republicans makes ideological sense. And I've been reading John Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, and getting a better sense of how some of these stances on issues are due to underlying ways of seeing the world. For example, conservatism is usually defined by respect for a tradition and authority, which would seem to help explain some of their stances on major issues, while liberals are more concerned with issues of compassion and have less respect for tradition. And that can help explain a lot of their stances. So some ideological stances seem to make sense in this regard, seem kind of predetermined, but then other issues might seem a bit arbitrary, like they could go either way. So can you talk a little bit about how you see uh, some political party stances maybe being a bit more predetermined in the way they align with fundamental worldviews, while some might be more on the more arbitrary and less predetermined end? Well, that's exactly why we pretested to make sure that the issues we were using were not already aligned. But you know, again, uh, in terms of conservatives, yeah, being more concerned with preserving traditions, uh, you know, here again, we have to be really careful not to see faces in the clouds. So, conservatives overwhelmingly supported Trump on November third. I mean, overwhelmingly. So let me ask you. I mean, is Trump preserving the traditional norms of presidential behavior? You know, is he conceding gracefully? Is he supporting the uh, democratic process uh, as a as a reasonable and fair way of selecting leaders? Uh, those are the traditional norms of presidential behavior, even norms of respectfulness and courtesy and deference. Is he respecting those traditions? And are, do conservatives care? Right. I guess we've seen them shift. Parties shift a lot. I mean, we've got you've got the, you know, civil rights issues. You've got the conservative economic stances, which have obviously shifted under Trump to more protectionism. Like you can have major shifts, as you're you're saying. And, you know, in some ways, Biden is much more of a traditionalist than Trump. But you won't find conservatives supporting Biden. And yes, your examples are great. I mean, Republicans used to be the party of Lincoln and Democrats were the Dixiecrats. And that's, you know, that's very different today. Uh, Yeah, Republicans used to be the ones that championed internationalism and opposition to Russia as a foreign adversary. And the Democrats were the isolationists. Um, And Democrats supported tariffs while Republicans backed free trade. Uh, Oh, here's another one. When I was in college, uh, it was the left who distrusted science. And now it's the right that distrusts science. So uh, liberals tend to be anti-vaxxers, but that could just as easily have emerged as a conservative position. Environmentalism was historically associated with the far right uh, and still is actually in some places in Europe. But now it's it's clearly seen as as a liberal position. The same people who advocate for the sanctity of human life on abortion also often support capital punishment. So uh, people who support law and order also oppose enforcement of government regulations to protect the environment against pollution that, by the way, kills more people than guns do. So, you know, good luck explaining issue positions based on a coherent worldview. Um, If I was going to play devil's advocate for the, you know, some of these things, it would be conservatives who support Trump would say they're offended by offenses to the to their traditions so much that they would support someone like Trump. I think I think if I was playing devil's advocate, that is how they, they view things. Like they see so much 
assault in their mind on what their traditions are, how they define their traditions, that they're willing to support someone like Trump. Now I'm just playing devil's advocate, but I'm trying to put it in that framework. Well, that's actually extremely useful. That's, that's very, very, what your, your, your response there is very useful because it shows that post hoc, after the fact, we can reconcile what we observe with our favorite explanation. You can find a way to spin a, a, a pattern and you can and to spin a worldview in order to reconcile the pattern with the worldview, no matter which side it's on. So if 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 it had been the other way around and Trump was the one supporting presidential norms, then we would we would focus on that. If he's challenging the the uh, presidential norms, then we say, well, the conservatives supported him in challenging the presidential norms because they know he will support other traditions that we care about more. So, it, you know, it, I think that's exactly the, the, the tendency that we're fascinated by, that we love to look at uh, outcomes and then come up with the explanation after we've seen the outcome. Uh, Duncan Watts, who, who worked with Selganic on that music study, has an entire book on this. And uh, it, it, the title of the book is uh, Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. And that in some ways is, is our Bible for this study. Uh, that's the thing that we're taking on is the obviousness of post hoc explanation. And what we're doing is we're showing that before you, you come up with the explanation, you first have to rule out the possibility that it's random, that it could just as easily have been the other way. Right. And you make great points. I mean, you can easily imagine Trump. I mean, Trump obviously has been leading the way on many things and people just follow in his footsteps. And you, obviously other uh, political leaders you can point to have done similar things. But, you know, for, for talking about Trump, you know, you can imagine a world in which Trump was very pro-mask and then through some you know, some other means right. like things, yes. things can easily get twisted mm -hmm. and things would follow a completely different path, just depending on some initial choice yes. of Trump or whoever. That, that's uh, a yeah. great example. That's a, that masks are really a good example for the point that, that we're trying to make. That one really could have been the other way around. And Republicans were, were the ones uh, arguing masks. And when you think about it, there's just really no reason ideologically why you should be for or against masks. I mean, let's face it, it's public health. Uh, doesn't have much to do with ideology. And yet it has become a kind of bumper sticker for your, your ideology and your party affiliation. And uh, I don't know the answer on this, but I strongly suspect that there are very important tribal dynamics uh, in which it's not our ideas that shape our behavior, um, but maybe it's the other way around that our our tribal affiliations are the source of our ideas, that we adopt the positions on issues of our tribe rather than joining the tribe because the tribe agrees with us on those issues. I've been talking a lot about polarization on the podcast and your word bumper sticker, these these things that you know, shouldn't be political, just start to be associated with a certain group through some, you know, a very chaotic initial condition process. And they're, they don't, they shouldn't really be politically associated, but they become emblems or bumper stickers of a certain group. And I, another one I thought of was, I know secular conservatives who have become very pro-life in the last few years. And it's almost like there's this been this increasing, you know, drift to the, to the more extreme edges and, and things that 
previously people would have more variety on on the left too i can think of examples but people have become more entrenched more extreme in this fitting the stereotypes of their groups you know getting all the bumper stickers associated with with their group even though there shouldn't necessarily have to be all that alignment you know but uh yeah it made me think of of that too and it's it's really interesting the extent to which these bumper stickers are not just expressions of opinion but they're also expressions of belief in fact so that we actually can have these alternative factual realities in which our perceptions about what exists depend on our tribe and what our tribe tells us exists which gets reinforced in the echo chambers on social media and on broadcast media so i think that uh, in part what our research is showing is the way in which these tribal processes can become highly non-random and yet the positions that are taken that are being taken are remarkably arbitrary that it could just as easily have gone the other way and the sides could have been switched does your work show a dynamic where just by one side picking a side that the other side instinctually finds themselves picking the other side in a kind of contrarian us versus them way almost like people can't seem to just agree that there must be some sort of disagreement. I'm wondering if your work kind of points at that. Uh, Absolutely. That's a a great point. A great question. We have another paper, an earlier paper called Why Do Liberals Drink Lattes? And in that paper, we show that the what we call negative influence, the negative influence from the outgroup, from the other tribe, is absolutely essential for polarization. It's not just it's not enough that we agree with our our tribe. It's also important that we disagree with the the outgroup. So we you know when we think of influence, we think well influence is my ability to convince you of something. But you know there's also negative influence where I cause you to be the opposite of me, to differentiate from me. And we believe that's extremely important and, and actually not appreciated sufficiently. So in our experiment, it was not enough just to say most people say this. We had to have here's what your party says. Here's what the other party says. And it's that party differentiation that drives the process. It's not just agreement. It's agreement with the, with my tribe plus disagreement with the with the outgroup. I've seen a lot of examples of this on you know, on the liberal side with Trump being so extreme and, and disliked by liberals, when he picks a side, it seems to drive everybody to take more extreme positions on the other side. You know, whether that's immigration, you can see liberal stances on immigration and, and police stances change in the last few years very quickly. And it, it seems like there's this, that kind of process playing out, which, you know, is kind of this natural process that seems to lead to large groups and nations being prone to increasing polarization. There is actually some evidence that that happened on climate change, that back in the day when when global warming was first becoming something that people knew about and talked about, just emerging onto the scene, that there was not partisan division. Liberals and Republicans were equally likely to be concerned about it, even though they maybe didn't know all that much about it at that point. And then it, it separated. And I think that that process of negative influence was key to that separation. Otherwise, we would have ended up with um, the two parties taking the same position. By the way, I should also add the caveat that most Americans, regardless of party, 
share a, a, a concern about global warming as an existential threat. So this is really, I think, much more the party elites being divided on that one more than their their base. Right. It's the most extreme people that get the attention to that drive the conversation and that, that drive the political elites to in, in some way. Can you imagine a world in which liberals are more pro-life than conservatives? Absolutely. I think, um, in fact, there are important currents within the Democratic Party that are pro-life. So, for example, traditionally, Catholics, uh, working class Catholics were were Democrat. You know, that's changed because now uh, working class, the working class is much more politically divided with a large chunk of of non-college educated whites supporting uh, Republicans. But in an earlier era, there were strong class divisions on party and working class, uh, working class uh, voters tended to be Democrat. Many of them also tended to be Catholic. And as Catholics, they were pro-life. It also made me think too, you can imagine, you know, liberals are usually the ones who are have a lot of compassion for helpless things. And so you, you, I can imagine a world in which through some initial conditions, liberals were the ones saying, you know, don't kill these, uh, these fetuses and, and conservatives were the ones saying, Hey, I can do what I want, you know, kind of fuck your feelings in a way. Like I, I, I can, mm-hmm. I can kind of imagine these things just based on initial conditions, whether that be like religion or even constitutional initial conditions where things went another way. But yeah, interesting. So clearly on, uh, there are some issues in which ideology and worldview and moral foundations to refer back to Jonathan Hyde's work, that those things really do determine the outcome and people don't care what their tribe says or they're in the tribe because of that issue. So it, the tribe came second. It wasn't the tribe that drove the process. So for sure, I think there are important issues where the ideology, the worldview comes first. But what our work shows is that that's not universal and that there are many issues on which the tribe comes first and people are not adopting a position because that's the position that's consistent with a, a, a clearly held worldview where they can see the logical connection between the worldview and their position on the issue. Instead, they adopt a position on the issue because that's the position that's taken by their tribe. Immigration seems like an issue where it seems pretty ideologically predetermined. That's one that I can think of. But yeah, I'm sure there's many others that uh, seem more predetermined. And I think immigration could have gone either way, uh, although it's tricky because immigration involves so many things. Um, it involves who who is my family and where did, where did I come from? Uh, but it also involves... Uh, people's sense of who are true Americans and who are the people who who don't belong here, and and then and it also involves uh, racism, where the immigrants are not coming from you know Northern Europe, but they're coming from uh, areas of the world, from Africa, from uh, Puerto Rico, from Mexico. So it, race gets involved. So it's very complicated with with immigration, and clearly we're not saying that all issues are derived from your tribe. It's very likely that a majority of the issues even are issues where people adopt a position independently of any social influence from their neighbors. They just figure it out themselves and they take a position based on their core values, their worldview, their ideology. But there are also issues that people are adopting 
uh, on the basis of social influence from like-minded people. And as you rightly pointed out, differentiating from the hated out group. And on those issues, our point is that cascades can cause those alignments to have actually a random origin, which could just as easily have gone the other way. For the uh, immigration issue, I, I was thinking recently, imagining a situation in which most immigrants were uh, voted Republican. And in that case, I think you would quickly see a, um, a shift in, in stances there. Do you think if more people knew about your work, there would be less animosity and more understanding of each other? Do you think it helps, you know, these understanding these factors helps lower the political tensions? Well, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> I don't think too many people are going to know about my work outside the scientific community. And we're mainly writing for the scientific community. Having said that, scientists are just as tribal as anyone else. Uh, and I am just as tribal as the next person. Tribalism is is not cognitive. It is emotional. And so people who whose work is mostly intellectual, like scientists, are just as vulnerable to tribalism. So maybe the scientists who read our work might might it might have uh, caused them to think twice. I, I'm concerned about polarization. I'm concerned about tribalism. I would love to see our work have some uh, to contribute to uh, turning down the temperature. But I have to be realistic here. Uh, that's quite unlikely to happen. What I think our our uh, mission here is much more about making the case to the scientific community to be careful about seeing faces in the clouds. And before you invent an explanation, consider the possibility that it was a cascade in which the outcome could just as easily have been the reverse. Right. No, it's a great point. I mean, we all we all have so many biases and want to explain things and, and trying to not do that and trying to withhold judgment is very important, but very hard to do. It might be useful, though, if people who do have a much broader audience than, than we have, right, such as yourself, but also pundits and news media, I think it would be useful if they pointed out to people how the sides have switched on issues. Because if people were aware that our party used to have the opposite position and their party used to have our position, but it, it changed over time, it might cause people to, to think twice and to be a little bit more careful about adopting a position that maybe they don't even really understand just because it symbolizes their group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems valuable. Even just thinking about, you know, thought experiments, imagination of these different worlds where things could go different ways kind of opens your mind up to, you know, thinking about how kind of arbitrary some of your own beliefs might be, you know, and I think that's that's really valuable uh, imagining. So in your paper, uh, you write that, quote, social influence would likely have been much stronger had we conducted the experiment as a chat room where participants might experience social pressure for in-group conformity and out-group hostility, end quote. So this seemed to me to imply that you were of the opinion that using social media would enhance the effects you found. Is that accurate to say? And do you think we're in a situation where social media is amplifying some of these uh, tendencies? Well, so I think for sure it, it does amplify it, but the problem is not social media. Uh, social media is just the platform, and there are other platforms. The social pressure is is always there. It's there, in fact, because we are tribal creatures. We uh, we're moral creatures. Um, you know, people like to talk about the difference between morality and ethics. One way to think about it is ethics is about 
how we think we should behave, whereas morality is about how we think other people should behave. So you, you cited Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, which has the title, The Righteous Mind. Uh, morality is about righteousness, but righteousness is not just about what makes us support our tribe, or righteousness is not just about what makes us behave in a way that conforms to our moral principles. It is also what makes us pressure our fellow tribal members, our fellow tribe members to support the positions of our tribe and to oppose any tribe that, that's seen as a rival. And so in a way, I think this is the great paradox of the human condition. Uh, we cannot live without one another, but we cannot live with one another either. Uh, we, have, we have a hard time living outside groups, but once we're in groups, uh, those groups tend to engage in conflict with one another. And one of the mechanisms that enables that to happen is the social pressure by which we, we impose our righteousness on others. And for sure, uh, if you are a Democrat hanging out with Democrats and you say something that is Republican, you're going to hear about it. Uh, and the same thing on the Republican side. So we tend to think yeah, the animosity and the sanctioning is always, and the punishments are always directed between the tribes. But actually, uh, that is is not the whole story. There is a lot of pressuring and punishment and sanctioning that goes on within your group to keep everyone in line. And I think for sure on both sides, people feel that. They, they know that they're going to hear about it if they violate the consensus in their in their tribe. Yeah, and to your point, I, I mean, these are definitely natural tendencies. And I, I would say, I think that social media does amplify these in unique ways though. You know, we have, you know, Jamie Settle, who I interviewed on the podcast recently talked about her work, mm -hmm. her work of how Facebook makes us realize the political views or at least the p perceived political and cultural views of everyone around us, which, is something that's entirely new. Like we didn't used to have that visibility and that kind of increases the us versus them feelings. And then you've got also kind of a difference of speed and degree because you can see how an, an initial condition like Trump taking a stance on something shifts the conversation very rapidly throughout the whole, you know, the whole uh, nation really, because it, it gets, it gets spread so quickly through, I guess, through cable TV also, but through all of these very fast uh, mechanisms through social media, which, uh, the interactions help spread those ideas very quickly. So, and then th those very quick reactions can have very quick actions on the other side, reactions on the other side. So, even if it is a natural process that we're dealing with, I, I kind of see all of these modern uh, communication tools as just kind of like amplifying and and putting all of this stuff on speed, you know. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Well, the, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a couple of things to point out. One is the thing that you just mentioned that that Facebook and social media allow you to see what your what your your neighbors are thinking in ways that would be harder to detect outside your immediate circle. Uh, and that's for sure. Another thing, though, that social media does is it it does allow for sanctioning. So there's Twitter, especially is and Reddit are both notorious for you know the flaming and the and the attacking that goes on. And so there's not only a lot of pressure, a lot, a lot of sanctioning and negativity flying around on social media between people who disagree, but also within groups so that uh, you will hear about it on social media if you post something that deviates from 
the position uh, of your in-group. You will hear it from in-group members. And so social media allows us to, and, and, and has evolved norms that encourage us and open us to uh, practices that would be considered discourteous and impolite uh, in, in face-to-face communications. That, that sanctioning aspect of social media is, I think, uh, also important, as well as just learning about the positions of, of your, yeah, your network neighbors. This has been Dr. Michael Macy. Uh, would you like to talk about anything else that we, you feel we've missed here, or do you think that's a good ending point? There was one other study that we did on Cascades that your listeners might be interested in hearing about. It was a Cascade that we did based on a movie. Did you see the movie Pay It Forward? I did. So we did a study on that. So, yeah, Melina Tsvetkova and I did a study based on this movie, Pay It Forward. We basically we, we replicated the dynamics in the lab by by giving people the opportunity to be helped and to uh, and to pay it forward. And what we found is that, indeed, uh, as that movie suggests, that when you help people, it is not just the person whom you help that benefits, but also the people downstream who were helped because the person you helped became more likely to pay it forward. So we got these pay it forward cascades going in the lab. Uh, and that's that's the good news. But now here comes the uh, really bad news. Uh, The really bad news is that if you screw somebody, the same thing happens. You know, there's a smack it forward cascade uh, in which the person you harm becomes more likely to harm others. And, And worse yet, this negative effect is actually stronger than the positive one. So, you know, the next time you're thinking about screwing somebody, remember, you're also hurting all the people downstream as well. Right. Isn't there there's something about the negativity um, effect or something in psychology where negative things have more of an impact on you than, than positive things? And this may have something to do with that, or it may just be about uh, norms of obligation that the helping behavior uh, modifies which is why you get the cascade, the pay it forward cascade. But it, 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 it is, uh, I think it's important for people to be aware that uh, you're affecting people downstream, whether you're helping or hurting. Mm-hmm. There's that expression, hurt people, hurt people. And it seems like a lot of the ills in our society are, are due to, you know, people being abused in various ways and them taking it out on the world later, you know? Yeah. And it may be useful for people in general to become more aware of the ways in which they're living inside cascades, that everything they're doing is triggering behaviors by others that in turn trigger behaviors by others. And so our behaviors are amplified through our interactions with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to take it a, an extreme step further, I don't. I, I think free will is, is very unlikely, like it's hard for me to imagine the mechanisms behind having free will. So in some sense, you can view the entire universe and your entire existence as one big cascade of things that came before you. And you, you can see it in, in, in that light that we're all just part of a, uh, you know, a matter cascade or a process cascade. Yeah. 
Okay. Getting to uh, metaphysical there and maybe at the end, but um, this has been Dr. Michael Macy and uh, what's the best way if people wanted to contact you? Um, my email at Cornell. If you Google me, you you will get to uh, my Google Scholar page as, actually, and you'll see other papers and contact information. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. In the interview, I said I'd read some more of the questions from Dr. Macy's Opinion Cascade study but that seems a bit overkill right now. So instead, I'll just tell you how to find them. You can search for Science Mag Michael Macy Opinion Cascades, and you'll find his paper there. And the specific questions are in the supplementary materials linked at the bottom. This has been the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zachary Elwood. If you'd like to read episode summaries and get links, go to readingpokertales.video. Reviews and ratings are appreciated, if possible, on the podcast platform you listen on. Also, if you've appreciated this podcast or any of the other work I've done, and you want to throw some money my way, that's much appreciated. I make no money from this podcast or the other research or writing projects I've worked on. And honestly, I've spent quite a bit of time and money on these ventures over the past few years. I have a Patreon account at patreon.com slash Zach Elwood, Z-A-C-H-E-L-W-O-O-D. Or if you want to send via PayPal, my email address for PayPal is info at readingpokertels.com. Okay, thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies. Small Skies.